Well, I was, I was thinking and praying about a sermon series to launch off the new year at North Potorua Baptist Church. And as I was praying, I was left with the single word, surrender. And I started brainstorming ideas around this word when the, the title of the sermon series came clearly into my mind, Surrendering for Victory. So for the next two weeks, we're doing a two-part sermon series called Surrendering for Victory. And I'm very excited about this next series. You see, often I'm hearing people talk about their desire to see revival in New Zealand. I often hear about, from people who are desperate to see God work in our country. We want to see God's power unleashed. We want to see salvations flood through our nation. We want to see the broken restored and anyone held captive by any kind of negative power completely freed by the blood of Christ. I mean, in short, we want to see God's victory come upon Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yeah. But what we need to understand is that the Bible teaches us that if we want to see God's victory then we need to surrender our lives fully to Him. The Bible almost paints a paradox picture to the world around us. You see, to conquer the world, you need to fill your lives with all those kinds of power words, you know, success, fame, triumphs, promotions, accomplishments, followers, popularity. The list could go on and on. Yet when it comes to the kingdom of God, God teaches us to live in a completely different way. Victory will require surrender. God's eternal kingdom will require humility. Experiencing God's power will require submission. And if we really want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven then we're gonna to have to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. This is going to be the challenge for us all as we enter a new year. If we want to see the kingdom of God unleashed, then we're gonna to have to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. So I'm extremely excited to be exploring this theme with you over the next two weeks. But to begin with, I want to take you back in time to when I was a teenager and I was playing football. This particular year was the first year when I was playing out on the wing and I was struggling a bit to get my positioning right. You see, I'm a stickler for playing by the rules. In my mind, rules are made to be followed. Therefore, when it comes to sports, I try to follow the rules to the best of my ability. In regards to football, I knew about the offside rule. Therefore, when my coach put me out on the wing, I always made sure that I was not in an offside position when I went to receive the ball. I couldn't think of anything worse than receiving the ball and having the whistle blow to inform me that I'd been standing offside. Because I was being so deliberate about keeping myself in an onside position, this meant that my positioning on the field was atrocious. Whenever one of my teammates put in a through ball to me, I was never able to get to it in time because I'd placed myself so far behind the opposition defender out of fear of being caught offside. Remember, the way I'm wired is that I don't like to break rules. I mean, this drove my coach nuts. And the language that he used 
which I definitely cannot repeat at church, showed that he was not impressed with my style of playing football. One practice, my coach took me aside and told me something that made me extremely uncomfortable. He said to me, Jeremy, I want you to stand offside. Yes, you're going to get the referee calling you on it a few times, but every game from now on, I want you to be standing in an offside position when you receive the ball. This advice went against every fiber of my body, and I was faced with a daunting question, do I follow my coach, or do I follow how I want to play the game? Well, I decided I was going to take the coach's advice on board, and so I fought all my natural tendencies to put myself in an offside position. And boy, did I get called on it by the referees. Every time one of my teammates put in a through ball and I ran onto it, within seconds the whistle would blow, offside. This happened time and time again, offside, offside. Jeremy, you are offside. Yet the strangest thing happened. The more that I got got blown offside, the more my coach seemed to praise me. He'd be yelling from the sidelines, that's it, Jeremy, you're doing great, keep it up. I really thought that my coach had lost his mind, but he was the coach, so I kept doing what he was telling me. After a couple of games of following my coach's game plan and being blown offside every single time, it actually became a bit much for some of the parents. And I remember one of the parents calling out to me saying, Jeremy, don't you think it's time for you to be standing on an onside position? And I still remember the coach turning around and yelling, Jeremy is doing exactly what I've told him and he's doing a great job. You leave him alone and mind your own business. Well, that's the PG church friendly of what my... What my coach told the nosy parent. This game plan went on for a couple more games until something amazing happened. I was standing in my normal, slightly offside position, and what I didn't realize is that the defender on the other side of the field had dropped back, and in doing so, he'd placed me in an onside position. My teammates managed to retrieve possession of the ball. They quickly put in a through ball to me. I ran onto the ball, and for the first time in the season, the whistle didn't blow because I was on side. I was running with the ball. I realized as I looked up that I now had a one-on-one with the goalkeeper. And of course, with my amazing talent, talent I slotted it past the goalkeeper to score a beautiful goal. And as I ran back to my positioning, I glanced at my coach, and he had this huge smile on his face, and he just gave me a wink. Now, what I didn't realize at the time was that my coach was teaching me about positioning. My coach's goal was never for me to be in an offside position. This didn't achieve anything, as the frustrated parents tried to tell me. But my coach knew that for me to get out of my rule-following head and to start to flirt with the defender's line, it would have to start with me being called offside a few times. From that moment on, my instincts started kicking in, and I flirted with that line a lot more. And as a result, there were a lot more times when a through ball got put in, and I wasn't offside and was able to run on and score a goal from that specific play. So at the start of the season when my coach told me that he wanted me to continually stand in an offside position, I thought my coach had lost his mind and gone a bit crazy. At the end of the season, I realized that my coach was a bit of a genius and he knew exactly what he was doing. However, I still faced a big question that year. Do I follow the coach or do I follow my own game plan? You see, in my time playing football, I realized that not everyone follows the advice of the coach. And sometimes it comes at a huge cost to the team. 
We had this one guy that year on the opposite side of the field to me, and he was a solo player. Whenever he got the ball, he just tried to go around as many people as possible and score a goal himself. Now, don't get me wrong, this guy was very good. Probably one of the most skilled players I ever played with in regards to what he could do with the ball. But eventually, he would always get tackled, or by the time he took his shot, he'd got himself into a not great position. The coach continually told this guy to use the team, pass the ball, but this guy ignored the advice of the coach. And there were so many times when he was coming in and we had teammates wide open and if he just passed to us, we could have easily slotted it in the, in the goal, but he just always tried to do it himself. It was painful. Even though this guy had amazing skills, I think he ended the season without scoring a single goal. Yet when it came to me, I definitely wasn't the most skilled player on the team, but I ended the season as top goal scorer. And looking back, I couldn't help but conclude a big part of that was because I listened to and followed the advice of the coach. Every sporting player faces that question, do I follow the coach or do I follow my own game plan? And when it comes to the kingdom of God, we could ask the very same question. Are we going to follow the coach, our God, the creator of all, or are we going to follow our own game plan? And in a similar way to how my coach gave me advice that didn't make sense and confused me, when it comes to the kingdom of God, God is going to get us to do things that are not always going to make sense and might seem confusing. Like I said earlier, God is going to ask us to do things like surrender, and show humility, and submit to him, and lay down our lives for Jesus, and forgive those that have wronged us, and love our enemies. I mean, these concepts stand in stark contrast to the world around us, and we're left with a big question to answer. Are we going to follow the coach, or are we going to follow our own ways? Before we go any further, let's look at our text for this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, we're in Luke Chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 57 through to 62. So Luke chapter 9, starting in verses 57. It reads, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, that's Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The first point for us this morning is kingdom living is simple. It will probably come as no surprise to you that we live quite different lives to those living in the ancient world. And one of the big differences is around travel. Today, we are people that like to travel and go away. In the ancient world, this was not the case. Owing to the logistical challenges of having to walk everywhere and also the dangers that would be on the road like robbers and crooks, it was not uncommon for people to just stay put in their towns and live in one place for their entire lives. Except for the Jewish people. 
three times a year, the Jewish people would make the journey back to Jerusalem to celebrate the three major festivals. Now, if you lived in Galilee, like Jesus did, then it was a three to four day walk back to Jerusalem. The Jewish people didn't have iPhones and Bluetooth speakers. So what were they to do while they passed the time while they walked for three to four days? Well, they told stories. They would tell the story of the Exodus and how God led their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. They would tell the stories of the great kings like King David and the great prophets like Elijah and Elisha. In short, as they walked back to Jerusalem to celebrate God's redemption, they would remind themselves of all the things that God has done and what it meant to be a Jew. The reason that this is important for us to understand is that because this is the journey Jesus begins in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9 verse 51, it reads, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus is on the pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. However, there is a big difference this time. You see, Jesus' ancestors went on this journey to celebrate God's redemptive, the, the redemptive nature of God and how in Egypt, by the blood of the lambs, it protected the, the Jewish houses from the angel of death. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem to remember the ancient Passover. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to hang on a cross and become the new Passover for the entire human race. And just like the Jews that had gone before him, Jesus is going to use this journey to Jerusalem to remind the people around him about what it means to live for the kingdom of God. This journey is going to take about 10 chapters in Luke, so a lot's going to happen. And as this journey begins, three men enter into a dialogue with Jesus about what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. Two of the men, the first and the third, initiate the conversation with Jesus, whereas the second man is invited by Jesus to join in the conversation. I believe Luke does this to highlight both possibilities. It doesn't matter if Jesus calls out to you or if you come to him and request to be a follower, Jesus' standard of discipleship remain the same for everyone. If you want to follow Jesus, then it's going to come at a cost. It's also interesting to note that we never get told how the men respond to Jesus' challenge. The request is made, the challenge is given, and then it is up to us to speculate as to what happens next. And I can't help but wonder if Luke does this deliberately. Jesus gives the challenging call, and then it's left blank because it's now up to us to decide how are we going to respond to Jesus' call. We need to give the answer. The first man says to Jesus in verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies in verse 58 saying, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. These two verses are most likely bringing to mind a Jewish student who would follow a Jewish rabbi. You see, for a student to follow a rabbi, you would simply walk behind them and submit to their teaching. A rabbi didn't travel much outside of their hometown, and if a rabbi did travel, they were very well looked after. And so following a rabbi wasn't that much of an inconvenience. 
In fact, to be a student of a rabbi was an honor and a privilege. Jesus is no mere rabbi. Jesus' response in verse 58 is highlighting that to follow him is going to be more like following a prophet. You see, a prophet would go wherever God would lead them and they would travel great distances. And a prophet was completely dependent on the hospitality and generosity of others for survival. This is what a life lived following Jesus is going to look like. You're not going to have much because you're too busy living for the kingdom of God. In short, it is a life of simplicity because you're living for the kingdom of God and not trying to attain lots of things that belong to the kingdom of the world. I wonder, do we embrace a simple life today? I can't help but worry that Christians in the West get distracted and tempted by trying to achieve both the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. We want salvation, but we also want to have nice things. Jesus, I believe, is challenging us to a simple life where we focus on the kingdom of God. For example, as many of you know, I'm a petrol head and I love Ferrari. Yep, see, it's on my shoes. And often people will say to me, Jeremy, I'm sure that you would love to own a Ferrari if you could afford it. You know what? The truth is I never want to own a Ferrari, even if I could afford it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Ferraris. I never want to own one. I did a bit of a look on Trade Me on Friday, and the cheapest Ferrari as of Friday on Trade Me, this is the cheapest, was $125,000. And the most expensive Ferrari was $600,000 as of Friday on Trade Me. Personally, I could never justify spending that much on a car when there are children overseas dying from starvation. I could never justify spending that much on a car when there are people that are struggling to put a roof over their heads. I, mean, I could never justify spending that much on a car where there are people in the world that can't even afford basic health care. I mean, a car gets you from A to B. My 2002 Mazda Demio that's worth, what, $2,000, does the exact same job as a Ferrari. It gets me from A to B. Now, let's just imagine, let's speculate that I did have the money and I could afford a Ferrari. But instead of buying a Ferrari, I still bought a cheap car like my Mazda Demio. Imagine what I could do for the kingdom of God with the difference saved. A life of simplicity helps us remain anchored in the kingdom of God and not get distracted by the kingdom of the world. As we launch into a new year, I believe it's a great question that we can all ask. How can my life become more simple so that I can focus on the kingdom of God? And I don't believe it's just individual Christians that need to be challenged by a life of simplicity. I can't help but wonder if the church in the West gets distracted by trying to match the glimmer and glam of the world around us. Church can become more about putting on a show rather than God's people coming together and worshiping Him. I've gone to some churches and I've just been blown away by all the, all the stuff. Technology and cafes and fancy offices and lighting rigs and smoke machines and laser lights and you name it, some churches have it. 
And as I've gone to these, some of these conferences and I've walked into these environments, some of my fellow pastors, they, they walk into these churches and they go, wow, I'd love to be a pastor of a church like this. Now, why do you think pastors make these kinds of comments? Because we as humans naturally interpret big and flashy as being successful. Whereas I believe Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of God is about simplicity. Some of my most amazing worship experiences with God's people has been with me on an acoustic guitar and just a group of believers with open hearts. That's it. I've done these kinds of moments on beaches. There's been no projector screens, no technology, no amplifiers, no sound desk, just a guitar and voices and boy did we touch heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we can never have technology or nice stuff. Rather, what I'm saying is, what are we focused on achieving and how are we defining success? If our goal is bigger and better and flasher, then we're missing the point. Our goal should always be the kingdom of God. And the best way to stay focused on the kingdom of God and not become distracted is to live a life of simplicity. So as we launch into a new year, have a think about your life and maybe think of some of the ways you can simplify things a little more to stay focused on what is important. Next point, kingdom living is targeted. Reading verses 59 to 60, it says, he said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, First, let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus' words in these verses would have completely shocked the original audience. The obligation to bury one's father was regarded by many Jews of the time as the most holy and binding duty of a son. In fact, Jews believed that to bury your father was to fulfill the commandment to honor your mother and father. So these words from Jesus could have almost been seen as going against God's word and God's commandments. Now, most scholars conclude that Jesus is using what we call hyperbole language. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. I don't believe Jesus would ever deny someone going to the funeral of their father. But what Jesus is saying is that if you were ever in a rare situation and you had to make a choice, then the kingdom of God is the most important thing in the world. And everything in your life needs to be revolving around God's kingdom. I remember my first church when I was being trained to do my first funeral. And my senior pastor at the time, he sat me down and explained to me all the different parts that are involved when officiating a funeral. We came to the part where the minister will do a little sermon or devotion. And my pastor looked at me and he said, Jeremy, always preach to the living, never to the dead. You don't preach for the person laying in the casket, you preach for the people sitting there listening to your words. Now this seemed a bit obvious to my mind, but as I unpacked this with my pastor, he told me it's amazing how many people almost preach for the person who has died and their salvation. My pastor said to me, Jeremy, at a funeral you have a captive audience. Make sure you're preaching for the living, not the dead. 
This is almost what Jesus says in verse 60. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In fact, as I wrote this sermon, I wondered if this is where my, my first pastor got his point. I might have to ask him on that one. Jesus' point, you can't reach the dead with the kingdom of God, but you do have an opportunity to reach the living. Another way of saying this is kingdom living is targeted. Everything we do should have a purpose and a point that should ultimately be working towards the sharing of the kingdom of God. When you interact with your family, are you targeting your interactions towards the kingdom of God? When you go to work, are you targeting your interactions towards the kingdom of God? When you play sports, are you targeting your interactions towards the kingdom of God? When you date someone, are you targeting your interactions towards the kingdom of God? In your marriage, are you targeting your interactions towards the kingdom of God? We have a job to do. And we need to make sure that every area of our life is being targeted in the right direction so that we don't run the risk of becoming distracted. And the final point, kingdom living is different. Verses 61 to 62 read, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus is using hyperbole language. He's exaggerating to make a point that the kingdom of God should be the most important thing in our lives. And by using our relationship with our loved ones, our family, Jesus is saying, yes, the kingdom of God should even be more important than those people who are closest to you. I love what Fred Craddock says on this. He says, the radicality of Jesus' words lies in his claim to priority over the best, not the worst of human relationships. Jesus never said to choose him over the devil, but to choose him over the family. And the remarkable thing is that those who have done so have been freed from possession and worship of family and have found the distance necessary to love them. It's easy to say, I'll follow Jesus over Satan. But can we say, I'll follow Jesus over my family? That is the radical call Jesus is giving to us. And it's a great question for us to all ask, is living for the kingdom of God the most important thing in our lives? Jesus uses this image of a plower plowing a field to make the point that when we follow Jesus, we should not look back. You see, if you're plowing a field in the old days and you looked back, then guaranteed you're going to go crooked. Your line is not going to be straight. If we want to follow Jesus, we need to keep our eyes fixed on him and not look back. You see, there is always a danger to go back to what we know, to go back to what is familiar to go back to our old ways of life. The disciples did this after, after the disciples had seen the risen Christ. What does Peter do? He says to the others, I don't know what to do now. I'm going out for a fish. And that's exactly what he does. Peter looks back. Peter goes back to what was familiar, his old way of life. And Jesus comes to where the disciples are fishing and pretty much says to them, guys, what are you doing? You're no longer fishermen. Stop looking back. Walk into the new future that I have for you. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
I think every disciple in the world, after experiencing the risen Christ, faces the temptation of looking back and returning to what was familiar. The challenge for us is to keep walking forwards towards Christ, because living for the kingdom of God is a different way of life. Our old life, the ways of the world, they might give us temporary puffs of joy and satisfaction, but they're not going to give us the glories that come from eternal life with Jesus Christ. So I ask you again, what kingdom are you living for? Are you living for the kingdom of God or are you living for the kingdom of the world? Because as we've unpacked today, the kingdom of God is hard work. It will require surrendering. It will require humility. It will require sacrifice. It will require us to pray those amazing words, not my will, Lord, but your will. Living for the kingdom of God is really like waving a white flag of surrender. But when Jesus returns and calls you into his kingdom of glory, I'm sure that white flag of surrender will look pretty victorious then. As Chris Tomlin says in one of his songs, he says, we raise our white flag, we surrender all to you, all for you. We raise our white flag, the war is over, love has come, your love has won. Church, as we enter into a new year, I wonder, are we following our coach or are we following our own game plan? Are we really ready to follow Jesus at all costs? Let's pray and worship team, do you want to join me? Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for all you are and all you do. We thank you that, yes, you tell us to, to follow you at all costs, but that concept is not lost on you because you gave up everything to come down as a human, to live a life showing us what it means to be in perfect relationship with you and others, and then dying on a cross so that you can become, could become the Passover for the entire human race. You knew what it was like to give it all up. You knew what it was like to live the kingdom of God every second of every day, no matter what it would cost. You modeled this. And so you're not asking us to do anything that you didn't do yourself. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts will beat more and more in sync with you every second of every day. Pray that we will see how you lived and seek to model that passion, model that desire, model that dedication in our own lives. So I pray for each person here that they will be able to leave today and submit their lives to you. I pray they'll be able to pray that very beautiful but also very dangerous prayer. Not my will, Lord, but your will. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, speak to us, I pray. Give us dreams for the future. Give us hopes. Give us the, the courage to live this out and to be your hands and feet in the world around us. When we get it wrong, Lord, I pray in advance for forgiveness. 
I pray for those times where our pride gets in the way and we do it our way. We all struggle with it. We all struggle with trying to do our game plan versus your game plan. We all get tempted by the world and sometimes we succumb to temptation and do it the world's way rather than your way. For all those times, Lord, we ask for forgiveness and pray that your mercy and grace will wash over us. When we fall down, Lord, pick us up. Hold us close. May we know that even when we make mistakes, it doesn't make us a failure. We are still precious in your eyes. We are still worth saving. But also, may we not let that be an excuse to stay down or not do it your ways, but keep fighting and persevering as the Apostle Paul taught us. Keep working hard for that goal, not because we can work for our salvation, but because we don't want to run off course without realizing. So Lord, we just pray all these things, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.